temptation that, that we could actually replace God and call the shots of what is good and evil, right and wrong, for not just our lives but the world, which is essentially an act of rebellion against God, whereby we said, we want to replace you. We don't need you anymore. And so we think we can do a better job. And what we saw is the result of that decision was that every relationship that we have was broken. And so because all of our relationships were broken, we experienced shame and we blame other people and we try to cover over the fact that we've done something wrong. And what we said is that we needed a better Adam, right? We needed someone who could come along and actually cover, not not just in a temporary way over our sins so that we could sort of feel less shame for a day, but that, that could truly deal with our sin problem. To, to be a better covering in every way so that our shame would be removed from us so that we could experience once again this intimacy with God and with other people. And so today we're going to continue the story. We're going to look a little bit down the, the line. We're going to skip over a few chapters and we're going to come to a man named Noah. How many of you are familiar with the story of Noah? What's the story about? What's that? It's about a great flood. Okay, he trusts in God. It's about obedience to God's commands. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so he puts his faith in God's word rather than what his eyes could see. And because of that, he and his family are saved, right? Uh, So we're going to look at that story, but I want you to see that leading up to that story, God's image bearers, which is what Adam was, which is what Eve was, which is ultimately what their children are, these human beings, people made in the image of God, they begin to multiply and fill the earth. But one, one thing that we see is that not only is the image of God multiplying to fill the earth, but the, the disease of sin that corrupted us from the very beginning gets passed on from Adam to his kids, to their kids, from generation to generation to generation until we get to Noah's day. And so we're going to read about Noah in Genesis 6. I think this is on page 4 of the Bibles. We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to kind of skip through just to, to see the highlights. But this is what it says beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. How bad are things at this point? Pretty bad, right? The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have ever made them. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah... I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
So, make an ark for yourself. And God gives Noah detailed instructions about how this vessel should be made and and what should be used to make it. And Noah, says, did everything just as God had commanded him. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. Can you imagine sitting in the ark that you've built for seven days? God tells you to get inside and no rain. Day two, no rain. Day three, no rain. Day four, okay, all right, are we crazy here sitting in this ark? Can you imagine like what they're feeling at that point? On day seven, the Lord shut him in. And for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth and the waters increased. They lifted the, the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. It's a pretty stark tale, isn't it? it always, I always find it fascinating that we like to put this, uh, the pictorial of this scene above uh, cribs when our kids are born, and on mobiles that spin over their heads. And I'm like, what is it that we're trying to communicate (laughs) to our kids by having this kind of playful image uh, of the ark? Because here's the thing. uh, The story of the ark and and Noah, it's about salvation. It's about second chances. And we're going to get into those things. But first and foremost, primarily, it is a story about judgment. It is a story about how we have gone off the rails because of the sickness of sin that's inside of all of us, and God must and will do something about it. See, but we're uncomfortable with that version of the story, and so I think we tame it. We take away its claws and we take away its teeth because it feels more mundane to us if we can, can, can make it into a kind of a child's thing. And it doesn't seem as scary to us. It's scary. And, and in fact, I've, I've talked to those people that have been kind of far from faith, that didn't grow up in the church, uh, about the Bible. And, and if, if I ask the question, what story troubles you the most out of any story in the Bible, usually it's this story that comes up. So we have to, we have to see it maybe with a, a different viewpoint and try to get at what it is that God is trying to say through this particular story. And it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. But I, I think God, what God is trying to do is he, He's trying to allow us to see a few different things. The first thing, He wants us to see how bad the problem of sin really is. He, he wants us to see how severe the diagnosis is. Because if we don't understand how severe the diagnosis is, we'll never actually seek a cure. Right? I mean, if you have the flu, even though you feel terrible, most of the time you think, well, I'll just stay home in bed, and if I stay there long enough, eventually I'll start to feel well. But if you try to use that same diagnosis against cancer or some other form of disease that, that is fatal to its core, what will happen to you? You'll die in your bed. 
And so we have to understand that the, the, the sickness of sin is a fatal disease, that, that it needs a bigger solution, and we're going to get to that solution, but we also have to understand that this, this sickness, this disease, has actually an impact on the one that we walked away from. There is an impact in terms of the heart of God and how he feels about us. And so we're, we're going to discover that too. And, and each of these things I, I want to look at this morning actually correspond to kind of a big question that we have when it comes to God being a judge. And, and what Noah shows us is that God is in fact a judge. He will judge our sin. And so how bad is the problem? Let's start there. Um, why is this problem so bad? Like, what do you see in the story that gives you an indication that, that, that things are maybe worse than what we first thought they were? I mean, back in the story of Adam, you, you have Adam and Eve that are kind of hiding from one another and they're ashamed of what they've done. They're pushing God away. And you see that there is a, a difference in terms of the way that they relate to the world. But, but that's it, Right? Fast forward six chapters, and what's going on in the world now? What's happening in Noah's day that, that shows you that things are worse than what we first thought they might have been? Yeah, they're only evil all the time. There is violence everywhere, right? It's, we can, I'm sorry, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, this is not good. Yeah. We actually see the unraveling of everything that God has done to make the world a good, a good place for us to live, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you have this weird story at the front end of Genesis 6, which we're not going to quite get into all that today, but there, there is a broken relationship between every order of creation now. The once had harmony. There's now abuse going on between even levels of creation. And so here's the thing, though. Oftentimes when we, when we get to a point where we read a story of God's judgment or, or we think of God being the judge of the world and we watch him actually kind of wipe away everyone on the planet and all living things save for one family, we think to ourselves, I'm really uncomfortable with God doing that. Like, I, I don't know if I, I... How do you get close to a God of infinite justice like that who, who wipes everything out even though there is evil? But here's the thing. If, if you've ever said that to yourself, then chances are you've also said something else to yourself, which is something along the lines of this. When you think of your own personal experience of evil in the world, when you think of other people's sin and maybe what they've done to you, what's the one question that you have on your mind when it comes to God being a judge? When are you going to deal with this? When are you going to wipe this away? Because now, judgment isn't just a theoretical idea, it's a personal experience, right? And all of us have experienced some form of evil, some form of sin, some, some form of someone uh, made in the image of God who, who, who does something to us and we go, that's not right. And, and so our only recourse is we... we we either try to take matters into our own hands to, to bring justice about, or we feel powerless to do it, and so we point the finger at God and we go, when are you going to do something about this? See, and there's a problem, though. Because if we're saying that, while we're saying that, we're actually saying to God, 
I believe I'm a better judge. See, and if we're doing that, if, if we're questioning his judgment, if we're, we're kind of wagging our finger at him, then essentially what we're doing is we're doing the exact same thing that Adam and Eve first did when they ate the tree. You remember what the tree was? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did that represent? God's ability to make judgment calls about what is good and evil. And so to say to him in prayer or, or maybe in the silence of your own heart, or maybe you've, you've said these words to another, pe- another person in frustration, I know who's evil and good, and I wish God would just get on my program to wipe out the ones that are bad. See, that's an effort to be the judge, which is us trying to take his place, which, if you remember from last week, is the problem in the first place, is it not? See, Genesis 6-9 to actually tells us that God, there was a day when he did something about it. There was a day when God interceded. And verse 5 says why that was. Because the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that, I mean, listen to the language here. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil sometimes, all the time. See, here's, here's the truth about justice is that all of us want God to do something about evil, but almost no one is willing to admit that the same corruption that causes the worst wickedness in the world is also in you. It's also in you. See, it's, it's coming to the realization that I am what's wrong with the world. Regardless of how you feel about politics, I was very interested with the inauguration on Friday because one of the themes that kept coming up over and over and over and over again was this theme of the bad people have been in charge for far too long, but now the good people have spoken up and voted, and now the good people are in charge and everything is going to get better. Now, regardless of how you feel about whether you think that's a correct statement or not, It is an us-versus-them mentality, which completely skips over the fact that the problem with the world starts right here, in my heart and in your heart. Because this story tells us that in order for God to actually wipe out evil, he must wipe us out because evil is the result of sin and sin has infected every single part of our hearts. Not those bad people over there. Not the ones that you wish would, you know, God would wipe out over here. It starts with us. Because remember, who are the children of Adam? We are. So who deserves justice? We do. It begins with us. Now, I mean, think about this when you think of what it means to judge other people. When you think of of needing to forgive someone. By and large, this is is what I would challenge you with, you're probably forgetting either one of two things. Either you're forgetting on the one hand that our hearts are just as worthy of judgment as those that we're judging. And so we we completely forget that God has every right to take us out along with all the other people that aren't on the ark. 
Or we forget that there is a perfect judge who both knows how the world needs judgment because he sees everyone's hearts and he knows when judgment will, be, will come because he's the one who's writing history. See, if you forget one or both of those things, what will you inevitably do? You will take judgment upon yourself. And you will either enact it in word, in action, or in thought. See, here's the thing. Oftentimes we think, well, I'm not doing it in action. You know, like I haven't gone out and tried to like, you know, cut anyone's hand off for stealing from me. I I haven't gone out and, and sued anyone for their wrongful thing against me. I must be doing okay at this judgment. Yeah, but how has your thought life been over the last 24 hours? When you think of a person who's wronged you, do you resent them? Do you wish that God would do something to make their life worse? Do you find yourself hating them? Then you have a judgment problem. And so do I. A a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf, who's uh, Croatian and who um, did quite a bit of work in uh, the former Yugoslavia, was imprisoned for quite some time and tortured. And he wrote a book about his experience and actually coming to a place where he forgave and is forgiving the one who enacted the torture upon him. He has a, a, a little nickname for him, but this is the one thing he says in his book. Forgiveness flounders. In other words, we have a hard time forgiving because either I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying either I look at the person that I have the hard time forgiving, the hard time reconciling with, the hard time doing whatever, and and I come to the position that they are less than human and therefore God should judge them today, or I forget that I am in the same boat as them. It's one or the other. See, so think about someone you have difficulty forgiving and see if one or both of those things aren't actually missing from your thought process. The only way to actually forgive someone is to know that there is a judge and he is much better at it than you are. That's the only way to break the cycle of unforgiveness. Now, here's the other thing that we need to know. Not only that he exists, not only that he's good at it, but there's another layer to this because we have to know actually how much the problem of sin affects him as a judge. And so it's one thing to have like a really good judge and you know that you're wrong. That does you no good, right? I mean, if you're completely guilty of somebody and you're going to the best judge in the state you know that he's going to act as he should and that you will be condemned if, in fact, you are guilty. So we need to know actually something else about this judge. And, and oftentimes when we talk about God being a judge, what, I, what I've heard from people, and, and I've had this own experience, is, okay, may, maybe he is a good judge. Maybe I don't see everything. Maybe I'm just as worthy of judgment. But, but maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he's just waiting to wipe people out. Maybe he just, not only will other people be wiped away, but I'll be wiped away. And and because I feel shame, maybe God won't accept me. Maybe he doesn't care. 
Now, here's the thing, though. You have to remember, how widespread was this issue in Noah's day? It's pretty widespread, right? Every, all, all the time, every person. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely everywhere. Every heart is corrupt. And yet, why do we have the rest of the Bible? The Bible would be a really short book if it just went to Genesis chapter 6, right? I mean, it would be a pamphlet. And nobody would be around to read it, right? Why do we have... So this is the story from Genesis 6. Why do we have a Genesis 7 and a Genesis 8 and a Genesis 9 and so on? See, what we expect to hear is not what we end up seeing in the story. Because in verse 6 of Genesis 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. His heart was deeply troubled. If you actually look at those words in Hebrew to see what they mean, it actually means to have an unfulfilled longing. It means to be in bitter anguish, to have deep, deep frustration. It isn't it, right? It's Jesus in the garden. It's being in anguish over the pain that it's causing, not just the people that you're observing from a distance, but it's causing you. It's a very personal word. See, so what's God's reaction to the problem of our sin? He's filled with pain. The only correlation that I could possibly think of is he's like a parent that wishes that they could keep their kids from experiencing the destruction of a bad decision. Now, if, if you've ever had that experience, and I know many of you have, and you, you've given testimonies of God giving you grace even in the midst of that pain here at, at, in, the, in this gathering before. But if you've ever experienced that, and you're watching your child, your flesh and blood, experience the, the, the destruction of their own decision-making process, are you just watching from a distance and going, man, it's, it's a shame? Or do you feel pain? Do you feel like you're going through exactly what they're going through, even though you're not making the decisions and you're not experiencing the repercussions? Why is that? It's because they're made in your image. It's because you're connected with them. Their joy is your joy. Their sorrow is your sorrow. Their pain is your pain. And God is saying, the reason that you feel that way about your children is because I felt it first. The reason if you've ever had that happen to you is because it happened to me. Now, remember from Adam's story, How did God make us? Do you remember? We didn't cover it last week, but what did God do to actually form the first human being? He formed him from the dust of the ground. With what? Through a computer program? (laughs) Yeah. On the one hand, he forms us with his own hands, and then he breathes his own breath of life into us. What does that tell you about God's investment into you personally? What does that tell you about the way that he feels about you? It's personal. It's connected. It's intimate. Don't you see then? Whatever happens to you happens to him. 
Whatever you go through, he goes through. Whatever joy you have is the joy that he has. Whatever pain you have is the pain that he has. Your life is actually an extension of God's life. Uh, there's a very famous verse in Isaiah 45:15 that says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she's born? You'd go, of course not. I mean, if that, anything that happens to that baby immediately happens to the mother. Why? Because there's such a bond, there's such a connection. She can't forget. And yet he says, though she may forget, I will never forget you. I mean, think of the love and connection between a new mom and her nursing baby. And God has the audacity to say, not only is my love for you like that, it's greater. It's greater. You, you think you're walking through life alone without someone who's experiencing what you experience? You're wrong. Everything that you experience, I experience. See, that, that has implications, right? I mean, why didn't God just give up on us? Why didn't he just let us walk away? If everything was evil, why not just start all, all over again? Not with one family, but just completely from the beginning. Why even save a family of humans to begin with? And the answer is because God is love. Because God is love. Our, our idea of what love is has been so distorted in this culture. It is so backwards and upside down and, and, and bent. It, it, it's disfigured in so many different ways because it's not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's a decision. God is showing us what it means to actually love something. It's to decide to go on in spite of what you feel. It's to decide to, to press in in spite of the pain that it's going to cause you to continue It's to keep loving, to keep pursuing, to keep after in spite of the fact that it's not going to be the easy way to do it. Uh, uh, Our idea of love is just so temporal. It's so so fleeting. God's saying, my love for you is in spite of the fact that it's going to cause me great suffering to love you. And God says, I'm willing I'm willing to go on loving you even though it will cause me great suffering to do it. And I'm willing to pay the price. Which then brings us to the kind of the last question, which is, what is it that God will do to defeat the problem of sin? How is he going to bring about a solution? I mean, because things look really bad, don't they? All right, so let me ask you. Is the flood an act of judgment or salvation? What do you think? It's both, right? Why is it both? I mean, how could it possibly be both, right? Either God is a God of love who just kind of lets everything go, or he's a judge and and he, he, he demands payment for sin. He can't be both, right? And yet, what do we see in the story? The flood is an act of both. Why is it an act of both? Yeah, he found favor. 
See, here, here's the thing about the flood. On the one hand, God judges and wipes away sin, right? I mean, every, no one's left on the earth except for Noah and his family. Yet on the other hand, he's saving the world through Noah's family. He's actually giving a second chance. Now, so we're just getting to Noah here. I realize the title of this is The True and Better Noah. So here we've gotten to Noah, okay? And God comes to Noah and he says this. He says, put your faith in me and follow the instructions I give you. And Noah believes God and he puts his trust in what he can't see. He puts his trust in the Lord. And, what, and no one else does, right? Nobody else puts their trust in God's word. Only Noah and his family. And then the rains come and the waters rise. And, and Genesis 7.23 says this, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Who is left? Only Noah and those with him on the ark. And so here's what happens. This is what we discover. The waters that absolutely sink everyone else who chose not to believe in God's Word are the very same waters that saved Noah and his family. It was the water that crushed those who distrusted God and it was the water who lifted up those who did. Do you see what's going on? Both salvation and judgment simultaneously. Now here's the question. Did it work? Did it work? Did did sin get wiped out in terms of our conflict with God and with other people? Did Noah succeed in saving his family? I heard a no. And I heard a yes. Wait. (laughs) Here we are again. Is it no or yes? (laughs) Yeah. Ah, so it's both. This is a very confusing story, isn't it? <laughs> Here we are again. It's yes and no. Okay, let's, so let's, let's ask why. What went into the ark with Noah? Sin. Along with animals and people and sin went into the boat. So, so, you have both success and failure simultaneously. Because here, here it is on the one hand. I mean, Genesis 9 verse 1 actually tells us what happens when Noah and his family get off the boat. See if these words sound familiar. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Who did God tell that to? Adam. And so... It, it, The writer of Genesis wants us to be unmistakable. Noah is the new Adam. He, I mean, he even goes and plants a vineyard. He lives in a garden. I mean, it's it's absolutely everywhere. Be fruitful, multiply. He, He gets all the commands of God. Is this a new beginning? Absolutely. But at the very same time, what's going on? Has Noah changed? Has the, has the human race changed? No. I, I don't know if you think about these things, but, but I often do in, ter- in terms of like, what I think is going on in our own hearts. And, and many times I've at least thought to myself, if not said to other people, man, if, if only we got rid of all the bad people and kept the good people, then all of our problems would be solved. 
right? It, it, there's so much negativity in my life. If only I just could spend less time with the negative people and more time with the positive people, then I would be a more positive person and a less negative person. If only this person who did something to me could be removed from my life, then I could get on with my life. You ever said anything like that to yourself? See, the story of Noah says it will never work. It will never work. You can remove all the external stuff you you like, but your heart actually remains the same. See, with the flood, God temporarily showed that the spread slowed the, the spread of sin, but it didn't wipe it out. See, because Noah was both a fresh start for humanity and also a carrier of the disease that caused the problem in the first place. Which means that Noah both shows us the way that God is ultimately going to deal with sin, but he cannot be the final solution himself. He's not the better Adam. He points beyond himself to one who is true and better. Now fast forward thousands of years, and a disciple named Peter is talking about Jesus. And, and it, well, actually, he, he's talking about the flood, and he's talking about Noah in 1 Peter 3, verse 21 and 22. And he, 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 he wants to communicate how, how inadequate the ark was, how, how even though Noah put his faith in God, it still wasn't enough. Because he says this, in it, which is in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. What is he saying? He's saying, at the very most, Noah could only fit eight people while the multitudes perished. I mean, that was it. Just his immediate family. And and even those that went onto the ark, they got onto the ark and they were saved. And and so they get off the ark afterwards and they can go and take a bath. But their their bodies might be washed at that point, but their hearts are still the same. Do you see the implication for your life here? It means that even if you get a fresh start without a new heart, you are doomed to repeat the same bad choices that you've always made. See, we think if our circumstances would just change, if I got a fresh start like Noah, then everything would be different. Not even Noah was different. I mean, Noah got a fresh start. And one of the very first things he does after he plants a vineyard is that he goes and gets drunk in it. And then something, this little incident happens with his kids and he ends up coming out of his drunken stupor and curses one of them and totally screws up his family from that point on. Is he different? No. See, we need what Peter calls the pledge of a good conscience towards God. What in the world does that mean? We don't just need washing externally. We don't just need different circumstances. We need different insides. And what is that different inside is? It is the promise that God will give you a good heart towards him. That he will actually come inside of you and not just cleanse the outside of the cup, but wash you from the inside out so that you could be a different story, a different person. That you could lead a different family. I mean, wouldn't you love that? 
Wouldn't you love the, the ability to look more and more like the image bearer that God created you to be? Peter is saying, through Jesus, it's possible. It's possible. And, and we get a glimpse of how it's possible from Noah's very story because at the very end of the story, God begins to make promises to Noah just like he makes promises to us. And one of the things that you find out is that God makes this great grand promise to Noah about what he will ultimately do to bring Noah back to himself, to bring us back to himself. And he says this, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A sign is a symbol. He's going, this is how you know that you can bank on it, that I am not going to let this go, that I'm going to bring you back to me. It's going to be a covenant for all generations to come. What is the sign? What's the symbol? I've set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth forever. Which means then that the, when you look at a rainbow, it tells you absolutely everything that you need to know about what God will do to make a relationship with you and to keep it. Did you, ever, did you know that a rainbow shows you that? See, a, a rainbow symbolizes all kinds of other things today, but that was God's original intent for it. And, and the word rainbow here is... It's, it, it's rainbow because we th- know what a rainbow is, and so the translators are t- telling us exactly what it is. But the literal word for it is a war bow. It is a bow used for battle. It's not a bow to make a pretty day or to be a backdrop for a great little flower. It is an instrument of war. And what God is saying is, I have put away my weapon against you. I am making peace with you. See, I've hung it in the sky to remind you and to remind me that every time you look at it, I will never again condemn you. I will never be against you. Which is God's way of saying, whenever you look at clouds now, whenever storms come, whenever you think that things are bad, you can know that they are not clouds of judgment that will, that will bring water that takes life away. They are clouds that will give water that sustains you. See, we think every time we see a cloud come into our lives that it's God's way of judging us. Why would God do this to me? Why would He allow this? He must be against me. He, he, I must be His enemy. He, he, he must be mad at me. No! God promised it won't be that way. We have it right here. So you need to know, though, that even though God's war bow is hung in the clouds, that it will never be pointed at you again, it doesn't mean that it's lost its ability to shoot. So let me ask another question. These are like backwards questions, right? You're like, oh, great, another one. When you look at at a rainbow in the clouds, which direction is it facing? Think of a bow. If I have a bow in my hand and it's curved, and I have an arrow in it. If you take that bow and turn it up, it shows you the direction it's pointing, right? If a rainbow had an arrow in it, which way would it shoot? It would shoot up. 
wouldn't it be a little disconcerting if it was pointed the other way? <laughs> right? If you're walking around going, I don't know when that thing's going to go off. I just hope I'm not standing under it, right? It's pointing up. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the reason that God can lay his war bow up is because it's aimed up. God has not stopped being a God of justice and wrath. He's simply aiming his arrows of wrath at somewhere else, himself. See, and then we read later on in the story that Jesus, God in the flesh, comes along and Peter says about him in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died, Christ, God in the flesh, Son of God, incarnate in humanity, died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, in Noah's story, who, who gets on the boat? The righteous or the unrighteous? The righteous man gets on the boat and is saved. What is Peter telling you about Jesus' story? Who gets on the boat and, and is saved? The righteous one or the unrighteous? If anything, it's telling you that, that the, 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 the righteous one, the one who is in right relationship with God, who walks with God, is the one who steps off the boat to make room for those who are unrighteous. I mean, so think of it like you're standing before this great ark that's come down from heaven and Jesus steps off the boat and he goes, the way is now clear for you to enter in. You will not be safe anywhere save for here. And everyone who believes in Jesus' words walks onto that ship. And then the, the floods begin to come down. The rain starts and the waters begin to rise. And you think, okay, when is Jesus going to get on the boat? Like there's room for him. And instead of getting on the boat, Jesus is the one who closed the door on you to hem you in, in a place of safety, in a place of salvation. And the only way the door gets closed is if he is the one who's overcome by the storm. See, this is the gospel, right? is that when the flood of God's justice came, who did it sweep over? It swept over him so that you could be free. When God's war bow flung the arrow of his pain and wrath towards everything that we deserved, whose heart did it hit? It hit his. See, here in this story, we see God's heart breaking for sin. But on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God's heart completely torn in two. And when Jesus died on the cross, what did they use to make sure that he was dead? An oversized arrow flung into his heart. And what poured out from his heart? Blood and water, which tells you that his, his heart completely broke. See, here God begins to suffer for sin in the Genesis story, but on the cross, he suffers completely for our sin. Jesus had to die to remove the penalty of our judgment, but he was willing to die because of his great love for you and for me. He's the better Noah. He's the one who intercedes for you. It's the, he's the one who welcomes you into a place of safety. So I just want to give you a couple of things to think about in light of this story, and then we'll close. If you haven't come to him yet, 
If you haven't come to Jesus yet, if, you, if you've been trying to live your life apart from him or if you've been trying to live your life to please him and to be a righteous person, please stop and come to him. Please trust his word when he says, there is nothing that you can do to escape the storm of God's wrath save for believe in my words and follow my instructions, which is die to yourself and let me in. And so I just want to encourage you to come to him, to come to this greater ark, to this greater Noah, so that you and your family can be saved. To know that in Jesus you rise above the waters of God's wrath so that you can have life in him. God built a beautiful ark to put your hope in. Don't put your hope in anything else to save you. The second implication, I think, for this story is that if you have come to Jesus as Savior already, if you know his safety and security, if, if, if you've entered into this greater ark with him, if you understand the gospel, if you, if you know what God has done to you, then live your life pressing into other people the way that God pressed into you. See, the story of Jesus is not a story of, of getting out to a place of safety. It's a place of knowing that you've been brought to a place of safety so that you can press into other people's troubles. And so I just I want to encourage you when it comes to community, don't have an escapism kind of mentality where you go, I, I've, I'm just waiting for my exit out of here. I just want to get out of this world and I want to keep as clean as possible until the day that it happens. That's not the way that Jesus loved you. He stepped off the ark into the mud so that he could save you. Step into the mud of other people's lives so that they would know that there's a God who saves. And then last, when you think of your own life, when you think of the floods that come into you, when you think of the clouds that might surround you, you need to remember to get into the ark of what Jesus has done for you. It's so easy, right, when we think of our lives, when we think of the trouble that we're going through, we think of the difficulties and the obstacles, to look at the storm and go, it's too much. It's going to overwhelm me. It's going to overtake me. I don't see any way out. I mean, no flood that you've ever experienced is, the, is as bad as the flood that Noah and his family experienced. And yet, that ark is a is a, a pale comparison to the safety that Jesus can provide even through your greatest storms. Do you see that? And so what you need to do is when those things come to you is to remember the ark of, of the salvation that God has given you that absolutely nothing can stand against you. That those, those storms aren't storms of judgment. They're storms to make you more like Him. And so you can say, Bring them. Bring the storms of life because I know that even through them, I'll be okay. So I think if you remember to do that, you'll be able to say like Isaiah in, verse, in uh, Isaiah 43 too, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It's God's promise to you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Why? Because Jesus was swept over. So you know it will never come to you because he loves you that much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. 
Thank you that even though we deserved what absolutely everyone deserved in Noah's day, you promised that you would put away your weapons against us. You had every right to let the arrow fly at us. And yet you let it fly at the thing that was most precious to you, which is your own son. God, when I think of that, I, I just think how, how, how great your care is for us, how, how wonderful your mercy is. God, even if we've never experienced that mercy, I pray that, that you would bust down the door to our hearts to make us remember If it's been a long time since we've remembered and we're looking at the storms rather than at you, I pray, God, that you would make yourself look big and worthy to overcome everything. God, we need you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.